to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to emergency management, business continuity, disaster planning, and anything that's related to those subjects, um, crisis management, uh, everything. So um, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, I will be in Phoenix um, with Voice America at the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 23rd to 26th. And on the 24th, we're going to be broadcasting live. So uh, as I get some more information, I'll be uh, letting you guys know, and hopefully you tune in and, uh, you know, we'll talk to speakers and uh, attendees and uh, maybe snag a few conference organizers along the way. And maybe I'll even try to get a Voice America person on the air to talk about a few things. Um, Today, uh, as I've said before so many times, I am an avid reader and I do like to... uh, Uh, spend lots of time at the bookstore it's one of my favorite places you know um, and I do have uh, I come across books that I do tend to uh, reference quite a bit and um, always go back to and um, in in this industry there's always something to learn from different authors from different perspective different ideas that are out there so it's always a good idea to read you know that's how you learn and build our own skills and I reached out to one author recently um Connie White, who is the author of Social Media, Crisis Communication, and Emergency Management, Leveraging Web 2.0 Technologies. It's a great book, lots of information, and I'd like to welcome Connie to the show. Welcome, Connie. Thank you, Alex, and thank you for having me on Voice America. I'm happy to have you here. Can you give us, uh, give our listeners a little bit of uh, your history, like your biography, the things you've done, how you got to where you are today? And, and if you can, how did you get into emergency management and business continuity, et cetera? Well, I lived in beautiful Louisiana, just north of Lake Pontchartrain. And I went to university in New Orleans, and I was teaching at university in New Orleans. And when Katrina hit, well, actually, it started before that. I was going to university in New Jersey in 9-11, right? And when 9-11 struck, it, um, a lot of things happened, and it made our perspectives change on, I don't know, and our views change on the level of disaster management and how to handle it effectively. Mm-hmm. And so after um, completing my studies there, I moved back to my home in Louisiana, and lo and behold, uh, Katrina hit. And actually, I had dropped out of the Ph.D. program before then. You know, I just had enough of academia and, um, (laughs) you know, uh, Katrina hit and I saw it come. And I knew the community well enough to know, uh, have the foresight to know uh, the complications that we were going to encounter because Louisiana is very unique in many situations. And... um, once it hit, I had friends from Romania. They didn't even know what a hurricane really was. And I wow. had them evacuate to my area and others evacuate. And 
after not having electricity for 28 days, one of my old mentors from university contacted me again, and he said, "Are you sure you uh, are you sure you're done with your you know pursuit of your degree?" I've got an offer for you. <laughs> and when he offered for me to uh, work on his work, which was in emergency management information systems, I I agreed. I found it so important, and it gave my work more meaning. So it wasn't just doing a Ph.D. to do a Ph.D. anymore. It was uh, working to make things better, you know, to see what all we could do to improve communication and help people in a more real-time manner. Yeah, I, I find uh, emergency management, business continuity, disaster planning, you know, I always look at it as a way to help people. You know, it's not just, you know, a job. It's a way to help people because right. that's ultimately what you do in the end. Yeah, definitely. And when you when you know the people and when you know the community and when you see it firsthand, it really pulls at your heart. And I've, I've been lucky in a lot of respects. I had a group uh, called Sahana reach out to me when I was, uh, proposing some of my work, and they actually build free and open source software systems. And one of the emergency management information systems they build is Sahana, uh, S A H A N A, and it's used all over the world. It was uh, they started working on that software after the tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami, and. They asked me to actually develop my work for their system to be another module to add to it. So it really gave a lot more purpose because I was working now with an international community. It was all free and open source. It was all um, terribly important. You know, a lot of things had not mm-hmm. been uh, built or implemented, and technology was really new, you know, around 2005, 2006. We think of Facebook and the Internet and Twitter and all that as have been around for a while, but actually Facebook and Twitter was in its infancy back during Hurricane Trina and things of the Indian Ocean earthquake, the tsunami. You know, so when you combine being there firsthand with working with other people who have the same goals and the same feelings that you have, uh, mm-hmm. Boy, you just can't get any better than that. No, field of emergency management is exciting in and of itself. Yes, I agree with that completely. <laughs> so, based on your book, Social Media Crisis Communication and Emergency Management, we do have listeners around the globe, and you'd be surprised where some of the listeners are actually calling in. So, can you give us a definition, your definition of social media and web 2.0 technologies? What does that mean? To me, and everyone has their own definition of it, and it's always evolving, but to me it's about having the ability for a person, a single person, to communicate, give, and receive information in real time or close to real time to anybody they want to communicate with or any agency they want to communicate with. It gives you a voice where perhaps you didn't have one before. Mm-hmm. And not only not only with communication, but with the exchange of information, and the uh, you know how it's free. So much of it's free. It it is you know so for let let's look at this. Um, uh, how do organizations use this? And and I'm not just talking you know bank organizations. I'm talking in general organizations, communities. How can they use you know social media? 
media, sorry, in in stressful situations, you know, like Katrina's and things like that, how can they use it? Well, they, they are using it. You know, the um, when you look at your practitioner communities, they have a large number of policies and procedures that may restrict them from um, doing certain things, you know, with social media, but the public doesn't. So the public will take over and they will... They'll create their own Facebook pages. They'll, um, they'll perhaps fill that gap of information between those who have it and those who need it by, you know, providing other sorts of information. And lots of times, you know, during disasters, it's the community members who are the ones that need the information and that have the information. We go through the formal process of going through, you know, our law enforcement or whoever is the authority on the situation, you know, for your, you know, for your information. However, you know, people can come forward and people can take over the common public. And considering most people have an iPhone, you can do it anywhere. You know, for example, in Georgia, a couple of years ago, they had a big snow and it was big for Georgia. And they didn't, the officials didn't really call it, as well as they could have. You know, um, everybody was out on the street. Children were being taken home from school. Nothing was closed where, you know, hindsight, it should have been. And at one point, um, people were stuck on the highway. They could not get off the highway. And that highway around Atlanta is dreadful on a good day. But when you add something like snow, which is something we just don't get in the South, Mm -hmm. um, boy, it can plague everyone. And so... A lot of people didn't have the information they needed. All sorts of things were happening uh, to the people that were stranded on the highway, on the interstate. And one person created a page, and a Facebook page. And it was like, I don't remember what it was called, but it was like, Help Us on I-75, Georgia Snow. And it was amazing, the people, how the information generated by by others texting about it, by others telling others about it, how the Facebook information shared amongst the population of people who were not only in the middle of the disaster, but those who were concerned about those who were in the disaster. You know, like my mother Mm -hmm. was coming home. I think she's stuck on the highway. Uh, She lives in Georgia. I live in Ohio. You know, so it gives that sort of connection where the people who want the information and who need the information can utilize it. So, you know, people can, the public can take over and provide themselves information if they choose to, if they don't feel like the officials are providing them the information they need, because the officials may be busy, you know, but the officials use it as well, too. Facebook, uh, Twitter, YouTube, who knows what all they're using now. But Mm -hmm. um, you're... Your law officials, your law enforcement, your firemen, those groups will actually have their own Facebook accounts and Facebook groups, which are private and unknown to the public. And the groups may be for the smaller communities or a county. You know, so the uh, officials are using it. It's being used by a lot of people. It can be used, you know, as a comprehensive emergency management tool where, you know, the connections are built, the information is flowing uh, during all four or five or however many phases you want to think that there is in emergency management. So 
I see where there's a lot of use in emergency management by both um, officials and by the public. It's certainly mainstream at this point, I think. I don't know that it's totally leveraged as well as it could be, but it's certainly being utilized. I mean, you don't... uh, Your officials all have iPhones now, be they personal and they use them, or be they distributed by the department themselves. So it's integrated fully, I think, into society at this point. Do you think that with the use, obviously, of uh, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all these other sites by the public, can that hinder? Like, is there a downside to that in, in these kind of situations? You know, because I could say anything, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's sad, but, you know, disaster is an opportunity for certain groups of people, uh, be they, you know, coming to steal everything out of Florida after a hurricane or providing false information. Some people just think it's funny and they'll put uh, bad information out there and people react to it. Uh, again, look at Katrina. Gosh, boy, if social media would have been around, it might it might have even been worse because uh, there was bad information going around, for example, from the Superdome, you know, that people were getting raped and things of that nature. Well, what if that, you know, uh, with social media, it doesn't take any time for information to fly across it. And as we know, you That's know, right. the, a lie will be halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on, right? And that's the same with social media. So people react first, and then they think about it. You can look at how much crazy stuff is put on Facebook, and people react to it like it's real. They don't think about it. They don't question it. You know, they just accept it because, you know, it's on the Internet. It must be true. And so you've got to really, just like any information from anybody, you've got to think critically about it, analyze it, and... Uh, unfortunately, you don't really have a lot of time during some situations. But so, yeah, a lot of people, not a lot, but people will, you know, I, I think it's a reflection of reality. What people do normally, they do on on social sites. And, what? you know, putting false information out there is just one of the things that I think emergency management has always had to contend with. I guess that's also... You know, all it takes is one person to put the wrong piece of information out there, and then that just spreads around and it grows. You know, you may tell me the sky is purple, you know, and I start, you know, tweeting or posting on whatever, saying uh, the sky is purple, the sky is purple. Someone else picks that, does it up, and it becomes out of control when all you were saying was something, you know, uh, a simple joke, of, you know, uh, or, or, or something, and it gets totally misconstrued and can cause a lot of problems for people. You know, and you bring up an interesting point that actually is a, makes it difficult for emergency management officials to even practice or conduct exercises using online technology. Um, I had a, a group of emergency managers, and I wanted them to recreate a disaster online and respond to it. And it was really difficult because anything they put out, you know, they had to put a warning sign out first. This is not real, you know, Um, because it had one of those bits of information slip through the cracks and had been taken seriously, people would have started to respond to it. So there's there's kind of the double-edged sword 
is, you know, on one hand, you might have bad information out there, which is horrible, but the other, at the other side, is no information at all. And then everybody gets mm-hmm. to speculate the 100,000 different scenarios of what's going on, and they're, yeah. they're equally bad. So it's it's important for, you know, all the officials to try to get a hold on something, and then once something false is put out there to immediately... Um, you know, retract that information and try to make it, uh, try to correct it. But easier said than done. It's gone at that point. And I think that's a good spot to end on our first segment. We're talking with Connie White, the author of Social Media, Crisis Communication and Emergency Management, Leveraging Web 2.0 Technologies. And we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Connie White, the author of Social Media, Crisis Communication, and Emergency Management. Uh, Connie, just in the first segment, you mentioned something about social media sites um, you know, them being used and organizations and communities are restricted, can be restricted by their sites. Can you clarify what you meant by that? I thought that was an intriguing uh, point. 
Well, we all know, especially right now, everyone has to be politically correct. Um, and the different practitioner communities have to watch out on what they post or don't post because the police are under fire in a terrible manner right now, right? So they have to, um, I would think they would have to be more cautious than any other practitioner group right now. Your firemen, you know, they're, <laughs> I told one student, he didn't really like it. I said, look, when a fireman comes after you, they're coming to save you. When a cop comes after you, he's coming to arrest you. <laughs> and that's not true, right? <laughs> but it does kind of show the difference between the, the just those two practitioner communities and how the view of them can be reflected through their social sites. So your mm-hmm. police, you know, for example, law enforcement, is going to have a different sort of criteria for their website, taking in information especially, and making sure to not put forth in just any information. However, if if it's a police department like you, how our groups work around where I live rurally, they have their own private Facebook um, groups and their own that are just, you know, within the city. And then they have another one that's within the county. So they have more freedom to pass information around, you know, like being on the lookout for somebody uh, Mm -hmm. versus what they would put to the public. However, um, you know, the public, it sure does help for the public to be able to help the police when they do find someone, uh, an image of someone, and they need to know who it is, an Amber Alert, for example, things of that nature. So in, in your firemen... Well, that actually reminds me of an example. Um, the In Moncton, New Brunswick, uh, was it two years ago, where there was an active shooter wandering around the neighborhood, and the neighbors who were looking out their windows were keeping the police updated on where the shooter was. He's gone past this house, and here's the address. And that's how the police were able to find him so quickly. You know, yeah. narrow down the search. Oh, and imagine had they had a drone... You know, because that would yes. help too. I mean, you can um, you can well, shoot a drone, drone and you'll lose out some money, but not a whole lot more. But definitely, the people and th- and that plays two ways. You have uh, a lot of protesters that will use things like Twitter and such to keep each mm-hmm. other updated on where the cops are. I remember, um, you know, the occupiers way back. Um, they were actually using Twitter for situation awareness. You know, um, where they could get the Internet, where the cops were trying to stop them from going forward and um, things of that nature. But, yeah. Yeah, you and, know, and um, the it, public, it you, when you're, you've got something like that, you don't want to leave your house. You'd rather sit there and be online, just like the school shooting. Think about it. Mm-hmm. All these kids are in all these classes, all these teachers all over campus. Everybody's everywhere. And... Somebody enters the school. Where are they? Yeah. So let's look at the take this uh, you know organization's social media sites a step further. What do they need to consider when they build their social media sites, and how do they know if they're working? You know, what what should they include, not include? You know, um, you know, personal pages are obviously we we know what's on there. You know, we post our likes and our friends and, you know, what we had for lunch and things like that. But, you know, for organizations and emergency management and crisis management specifically, what do they need to consider when they're putting their their sites together? What do they need to communicate and not communicate? 
Well, they need to prioritize their information on what they want the public to know, and they need to build these relationships with the public so the uh, public and other groups even, it's not just the public, it's all the organizations that they normally work with day in and day out. So, again, it, it simply is a reflection of society and of where they are now. They all need to make sure to have ways to bring information in and ways to push information out. They need to have information that connects to their other social sites for other types of information people might be interested in. But the one, you know, one major thing they've really got to watch is uh, information overload, you know, and to make sure that people can find what they're looking for, not just during an emergency, but anytime. And some actually will change, you know, you know, if you if you know you're going to have, let's say you're in Florida and you know you're going to have a hurricane, and you need to go ahead and have information ready at that moment. You know that it comes. You don't you don't need to start gathering and well, what do we put up now and all this. You have to do. You know that's again part of your um, comprehensive emergency management plan for your social medias to you know be at the preparedness state. Mm-hmm. What scenarios do you foresee, and how are you going to manage them? And certain things like um, shelters, you would make the shelters more visible and put them on a map and even make it smart so that people know uh, which shelters have uh, are for families or diabetics or this or that. Um, how many openings do they have? How close is it? Can you get there from here? So there's that sort of information and and again, they have to prioritize what their information is for their community. And um, the way they can measure whether or not this information is effective is through the interactions of the social site. Again, not only during, but after and before a disaster strikes. So um, likes, how many likes do they get? How many mentions did they get? How many times was the information they posted shared? Because once it's shared, well, then it's shared with more and more and more and more that outreach. And they can have tools that will actually tell them what their uh, reach was. You know, so there's all different ways to measure the metrics of your social media approach. Um because before, you know, everybody trying to call the same phone line and dispatch or the operators or whoever might be at the other end to help manage a disaster, they're going to get overwhelmed. They can't take all the calls in. Uh, when the when the flood hits and the water's rising and everybody wants to be rescued, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's much better to, you know, have all the information at disposal right there, you know, to have your... I don't know, you're, I don't believe in having an axe in the attic with you if you're in a flood, but a chainsaw or, <laughs> I don't know, skill saw. You, uh, you mentioned. Person put, put a butcher knife. I said, don't, put, don't try to go through your roof in a butcher knife. But, you know, all the information, you know, a lot of it can also be to share lessons learned and best practices amongst the practitioner communities themselves. Because it's like any group. You're, you're a community of practice. You've got all these people who are professionals, who are experts within these areas, and they need to know certain, they have questions that are specific to them and specific to their, 
situation and environment, and they can learn from one another, <clears throat> where others, maybe even from another country, have experienced the same problems and have new solutions uh, where information can be shared, knowledge gained. And you had spoken earlier about um, the audience and where all the members come from. You know, we talk in the United States, Facebook, Twitter, this and that, but every country is different when it comes to social media. Everything from what they do on it, how they do it, what colors are used, um, you know, what are the rules? I think China's got an advantage in that they can control their social media a lot more than we can in the United States. And so I would imagine that they have um, a better stream of information coming through during a disaster. But, again, all these different countries have sites that you may not even know of. Uh, they mm-hmm. certainly aren't all on Facebook or Twitter, and they all don't have the equivalents of Facebook or Twitter. They have social sites that reflect their society and their needs and who they are. So that's really an interesting question because I was going to do a uh, second edition to this book, and one chapter I've already written is on social media used throughout the world. And it's amazing how different um, the sites are from one country to the next. That's interesting. So how, you know, a widespread disaster, let's take the uh, tsunami uh, a few years back, you know, in the Indian Ocean, using social media. If everyone's got different sites, how, and different content and rules, you know, around them, how would we get a consistent message out there? Is that even possible? Yeah, it it travels. It'll travel from one site to another. And, you know, languages don't transfer well. So how can messages? And then the technologies don't. A lot of people were reduced to messaging, which ended up being a really strong tool because they did, you know, your infrastructure and your communication lines are the first things to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so even like after, you know, Katrina, you know, we could, nobody could use a phone. So the idea that you could even have, and, and you know, the cell towers go down, the batteries die. So you, you end up with no way to communicate. But, um, the people of those countries after the Indian tsunami were much better prepared to do more with less. They were used to it. They could charge a phone with a battery and a couple of pennies where we don't have a clue, you know, or in general. I don't mean, uh, you know, as a whole society. Um, so I, I do know that when other, like the uh, Haiti earthquake, we were real close, right? The United States was, and we had scientists over here trying to uh, take their messages and make them, change them into English. And it was very difficult because they had a certain type of, um, you know, like any group, they have a certain dialect to their language, which made them, you know, even more difficult to understand. And so mm-hmm. it's not all technology-based. A lot of interpreters come out and things of that nature, and then they move it to another technology. They take it from whatever source they have. And I believe they went to a messaging system in Earth in um, Haiti, you know, text some mm-hmm. specific number, and they got the word out on that. And then the people, you know, as teams collectively worked together 
to bring those messages in, try to translate them, try to get them to the right people. It's very difficult, and it's, you know, you've got to have human intervention. It, It can't all be done on a computer. Yeah, that's true. You made another pointer earlier on. Um, about information overload. What kind of things are information overload? And, and what do you mean by overload? You know, isn't more, you know, the more information I give you better? No. <laughs> Especially <laughs> during the crisis. You need to focus on what you need to focus on. I remember um, when Twitter started being utilized by emergency managers, you know, some people just go tweet crazy and they're tweeting all the time. Well, what do you read? You know, and and what do you react to and what's most important? And it's important for communities, practitioner communities, to test their systems out with their public. You know, get a a group of them and say, hey, this just happened. I want you to go to this site and tell me how are you going to report this information or how are you going to look for your information? Where are you going to look? And it's just like any sort of software development in that you've got to not think that you, you know, when you're creating something, of course you understand it, but you're not your target market. You've got to mm-hmm. make sure the other people understand what it is, and you've got to make sure that you're providing them the information that they need. Um, one big t- transformation of the online news sites, you know, CNN, Fox, is that they, they're really picture-driven now. And I remember when, you know, one they're always experimenting, and I love it. But one group, and I can't remember which one it was, came out with just a million stories. You just couldn't find anything. Now it's kind of the opposite to me. All I see are a bunch of pictures, and half the time, you know, the pictures, <laughs> they'll tell a story they won't even read. Or, or what I don't like is how they feel like they have a video. They have to have a video with every story, whether the mm-hmm. video relates to the story directly or not. So, uh, you know, I think it's important not to get up caught up in trends that may be time consuming. And of course, time is something you simply don't have to waste during an emergency, so or a disaster situation or catastrophic event. Look at look at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I mean. What all are what all sort of information are they having to provide now to their community? Well, it seems to be changing on a daily basis in Hawaii uh, by watching the news. So that's got to be tough. Yeah, you know, and um, and I imagine they can even look at their forums and see what people are asking. You know, so mm-hmm. even if it's something you haven't done before and you haven't managed before. If, this, if a lot of people are asking the same questions, you know, to maybe make a, a website or a, a Facebook site more fluid. You know, and a Facebook site is not a website, right? You have to dig for that information, just like Twitter. Information yeah. flies by you. It's on a timely basis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to have a fluid web design that's a go-to place for people who need the same information that's consistent, that's updated, and for it to reflect the needs of the disaster as the disaster unfolds, because it changes. That's right. And I think that's a a spot to end our second segment. We're going to come back. We're talking with Connie White, 
the author of Social Media Crisis Communications and Emergency Management, and we're going to change topics a little bit. We're going to talk about drones in emergency management. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. We're talking with author Connie White. And just before I went away at the, on the last segment, I mentioned we're going to talk about drones and emergency management. Originally, this last segment, Connie and I would still be talking about crisis management you know, and, and uh, subjects in her book. Um, but I noticed uh, as we first communicated that she's working with drones and uh, drones and emergency management. So, you know, uh, I thought, you know what, dedicate a whole segment to this one. So, Connie, can you tell us, you know, first of all, what is a drone? Some people may not be familiar with the term yet, you know, because they are still relatively new. And how can we use these in emergency and disaster management? Hi, Alex. Um, drones are so exciting. They're the latest, greatest, fun technology tool that's going to transform again um, how emergency management is conducted to a certain degree. And, again, with the definitions, drones are different things to different people, and, and gosh, there's such a variety of drones. I don't even want to dare try to get onto that topic. But in this context, drones are a, a tool that um, I use quadcopters 
where you're able to man another piece of equipment without being there, right? And the drones in this nature are little helicopters that have all sorts of devices um, hooked up to them that you can control for X amount of time, for X amount of distance, and for we don't even know at all that they can be utilized for at this point. It's just that new, especially um, here in the United States where we're getting to toy with them a little bit, but we have a, a great number of restrictions that we're having to deal with at this point. However, I think um, a lot of people are still implementing them, and like all new technology, they are starting to be um, implemented and utilized mm-hmm. by various emergency management officials. Actually, I think what drones do in one respect is that they now further complicate the role of technology in emergency management and who controls it and who does what and who's responsible for it. And I'm almost wondering, at a certain point, is there not going to need to be a technical assistant or some job skill that will be uh, an integrated part of every emergency management community because um, you can see, you know, and not only the drone, but all the technology that goes with it. Cause you know what we've been talking about, somebody's had to implement and normally mm-hmm. it isn't somebody new. It's, it's further squeezed into the, you know, the toolbox of what all these practitioners already have to do. You know, mm-hmm. who is who is maintaining the website? Who is controlling what information can go out? You know, all these, you know, and now who flies the drone? You know, and um, there, there's just so much, you know, what drone do you use? What, what do you want? What sort of equipment do you want on your drone? Do you want a, a camera, photos? Do you want to take... Uh, video, do you want thermal imaging, FLIR, uh, there's just, uh, do you want it to be able to carry medications, you know, across the river that you normally can't get to and things of that nature. So, um, drones are definitely the latest, greatest tool to help manage emergencies in, in all shapes and forms and fashions. I recently read um, an article where the U.S. did some studies, and they showed where and uh, it's either like it cost a seventh of what normally a certain task would cost, and it's conducted in one-tenth of the time, or I had those two reversed. It might be one-seventh of the time and at one-tenth of the cost. But uh, nonetheless, it's an incredible tool. We use them, we use them around here. So my practitioner community here is wonderful and I do whatever they'll allow me to do, right? So that I can learn what do they need and how do they need to utilize it. So we had, um, uh, an extreme drought a couple of years ago and we're in a mountainous area, um, in a rural area to boot. So those are, you know, I mean, anybody having a fire, it's complicated and it's bad. But what was great was um, I was allowed to fly the drone, uh, have one of the practitioners tell me where to go, 
And what they wanted to do was to make sure that they had the, the line created where no fire had passed it. They wanted to make sure that no buildings were in danger because you've got sheds, barns. You've got all sorts of things in these rural areas. Mm-hmm. And considering we're so wooded, it's hard to see. Um, and the drone could, you know, it, it, you need both the human's vision, but also the drone helped a lot. And they could tell that they were managing the fire perfectly and things of that nature. But So that's um, interesting. So that, that means yeah, a, a drone can can direct resources, help you redirect resources to those in need, and at the same time, make sure that the resources you have, emergency responders, first responders, you know, don't walk into additional danger. Right. Look at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Not only imagine the lava, but they're trying, they're using things right now to uh, show people how to evacuate when they, you know, when the other routes have been cut off. They are able to send these drones into toxic areas, and the drones could have um, all sorts of instruments on them to measure the toxicity levels, things of that nature. Uh, the drone can fall into the lava, and it's okay. You know, it's 1500 bucks at least gone, but it's not a human life. <clears throat> so you've got all these sorts of uh, ways that drones can be utilized. And again, the focus is now sort of on, you know, the video and the that capability, but you've got already developed the, the FLIR technology as part of it, you know, your thermal in, imaging, your night vision, all sorts of tools that can be added, your packages that can be taken uh, from point A to point B, and, you know, diabetics, information, uh, uh, their medications, things of that nature. So- so it's it's um, so amazing is, what all drones can do now. One thing I find is that there's there's not enough emphasis on the training of drones. You know, I've seen more guys, and I just haven't seen any gals do this yet. I'll see a guy get a drone, and he will. It, it's like a contest to see how quickly he can smash that drone into the side of a building. So <laughs> a lot more emphasis needs to go into. You know, how do you utilize your drone on the water? What sort of patterns do you use? What about the light reflecting? Are there filters you can add to your drone's camera? Um, what sort of exercises do people need to do in order to learn to fly their drones the way they need to? Because they're not easy to fly. It's not easy to keep an eye on what you're wanting to look at, especially when that is moving. And there are all sorts of uh, software apps being generated. Um, gosh, they've got the best simulators, you know, for you to fly your drone. But, you know, drones are great when the weather's great, when there's not any rain, when there's not any fog, when it's not nighttime. There are a lot of times when you can't use a drone. So until we have um, drones that are more robust to those sorts of things, we still, you know, you can still only implement them on a limited basis. That that's interesting. You you mentioned that because I I had it on my mind going, hey, we could do searches at night. Do you think that's coming? You know, those, those changes what, to be able to do that. I see it coming, but it's it's you know it's just 
slow to be accepted. You know, and most of our government agencies are on a tight budget. So mm-hmm. it's not just the drone. It's the remote control. Then you've got to have your um, your phone that goes with it, your tablet that goes with it. Then you really need a big monitor. How do you share the information? You know, it's all in the details. So we were... Um, I, I live on a, a in an area that has a thirty thousand two hundred acre lake with five rivers running through it. It's huge, and we had a drowned victim, and it was a um, you know recovery effort. And you know, how many drones do you set out? How many you know uh, one, two, three? How many pilots do you have out? What time do you go out? I was one of, I used the drone. I have a friend in the neighboring state of Georgia, and he came over. He used his drone. I don't use software. He uses software. And then a third group of uh, law enforcement, I think they were out of the neighboring county or whatever. We're, everybody really helps everybody a lot in my area. They came, you know, and they had a drone, and they kept their drone on the boat, and they kept it tied to a string, you know, so... Um, everybody was implementing uh, their drone technology in different ways, you know, and um, hmm. a lot of research has to be conducted in that. Hopefully Brock Long of FEMA uh, will help us move forward with these sorts of things. God knows that man has had to react to more disasters in a year or 500 days than I think any of its predecessors, so... You know, hopefully between the FAA and Brock Long and, and others, we'll be able to re- really utilize drone technology more because, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, these groups are funded. It's not like mm-hmm. they just have the money to go out and buy all this equipment and then all this time to train themselves because there's just not a whole lot out there. And they're pretty busy as it is. Yeah, they you you know they've got a lot on their plate, and you you brought up a good point there. Of once you have the information, you know all the, these pictures and this film or or whatever it is you're taking. Now, what do you do with it? How, you know, you need to be able to connect it to everything else. So, you know, it is a big end to end project. You know, to try and get that developed and working properly, and get the right people in place with the right skills to be able to do it. So right. we just, we only changing have changing the video of her from the drone to to let somebody watch it is a big ordeal. Yeah. So we only have three minutes left. So you because know, I could talk talk a lot more about drones here for a little while, but you know, is there what what closing comments would you like to say about you know drones and emergency management and and social media? Well, I'm I'm real happy. When we first started doing our studies, they were in 2006, and when I brought up the idea of somebody tweeting. Uh, a serious issue, boy, you know, it, it was not taken seriously at all. And so I think it's wonderful how no matter how crazy the names of these social media sites that they may be, that you've got people really getting into it and leveraging it as much as possible. And hopefully this will happen with the drone technology, too. One, mm-hmm. you know, the our groups can be apprehensive because nobody wants to be the first to screw up and be, you know, published all over the place, right? They want somebody else to do it first and to see what happens. And hopefully it would be nice if they would um, embrace this sort of technology more. But, again, they're so strapped financially, uh, you know, human resources-wise and everything else. Hopefully 
hopefully they'll be better funded and we'll be able to do more so that they can help the people more. Because as we know, you know, the an ounce of prevention, right? So yeah. A dime saves I don't know how much money. It's like $7 or something. Every, every, every article I read is a bit different. So the technology works, and it... It's going to save us money, but I think it's scary being the first to do things. Yeah. Hopefully they'll embrace it a bit more and, and go for it, especially we've got all these newer kids that are entering our practitioner community. So it's nice that way, as well as having the older um, yeah. people as well. Well, on that, we've come to the end of the show. Connie, I want to thank you very much for your insight on the social media and emergency management, and especially the last segment here about drones. Thank you very much for joining us. And Thank you, to Alex. Every... Thank you for having me on Voice America. It was great. Oh, you're very welcome. And when you get further with the drones, maybe we'll get you back and we'll uh, we'll talk about more about that, you know, things that have happened in, um, in place. Um, I'd like to remind everyone that I will be at, in Phoenix, the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 23rd to 26th. And on the 24th, Monday, we'll be broadcasting live with Voice America. So anyone uh, attending that conference, please hunt me down. I'll be the one with the microphone walking through. If you've got any topics we want to talk about, please send me a message. Thanks again, Connie. And in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.